Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and of course across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we do keep you up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me as always is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. And Niall, I suppose the story we've been watching for the, the last couple of weeks, just to get a couple of quick news stories in before we do our interview this week, uh, is Bitcoin. It's been up and down like a roller coaster. Yeah, and this has been on, let's see, our last show when we were talking uh, about stories of the year. We mentioned Bitcoin as something that's going to define 2018. And it's gotten off to a very ropey start indeed. I mean, when we were talking in December, Bitcoin seemed like a pretty nifty little investment at the time. I think it was up around, the value of Bitcoin was something like $20,000, I think. It was $20,000. And the last time I looked a few days ago, it was back down to $10,000. It had lost 50% of its value. It's, It's an incredible run. Yeah, and that's where an awful lot of Bitcoin's problems are at the moment, to such an extent that uh, Stripe, which is the payments processor founded by the Collison brothers from Limerick, um, they've decided that they will no longer uh, carry Bitcoin as currency across its network. Pretty much for that reason, that Bitcoin is just too volatile, uh, for one, and for two, people are hoarding it like a commodity and not using it like a currency. So it's it's like, you know, it's this thing, it's this currency that isn't actually being used to buy and sell anything, and you don't know what it's going to be worth from one moment to the next. So why would you bother supporting it? So Stripe, who process so many credit card payments and, and financial payments online, are saying that people aren't using Bitcoin to actually make purchases anymore. Yeah, it's sort of being used uh, as sort of a speculative uh, commodity. And uh, I can see how that's happening. I mean, when you when you have people that are mining Bitcoin that is worth, you know, as we said, twenty twenty thousand dollars a Bitcoin before um, last January. Mm. So yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's, it's interesting. Decision. Apparently, mining Bitcoin now is quite a popular thing to do, and uh, to boost the processing power of your computer in order to do the mining, people are buying very high end graphics cards which means that there aren't enough graphics cards out for the people who really want those things, which is like uh, graphic designers and, and gamers. That's really interesting. Because you remember um, last week at our Whistle Stop tour of the Young Scientist, we met a young man who did a study on the amount of energy it was taking to mine Bitcoin and how it was just going off the scale. So, yeah, bad times if you if you want to get into Bitcoin. Bad times. And, and they also have a little bit of trouble with Skype as well, do they? Uh, well, you fill me in on that one. No, actually, no, I don't. I'm, I'm, I can't even read my own notes. It's Stripe. <laughs> Ta-da! Listen, next story, moving quickly on Facebook. And now that was another of the big stories last year, which we correctly predicted would be one of the big stories this year, because Facebook have admitted uh, that the advertising that was placed by the Russians would did have an effect on the American election, and they're working to fix that. And now they're asking their own users what news they do and don't believe. Yeah, well, a lot of nonsense. I mean, this is Facebook's latest attempt to do the whole, yeah, we're a platform, not a publisher. We're not We're not a media company. We just sort of recommend things that people might like. We've nothing to do with the actual production of this stuff, uh, which, of course, is complete bunk at this stage. I mean, if uh, news, uh, Facebook's argument is like we're, we're like a rack 
of uh, of newspaper titles when you walk into a shop and the shop has no responsibility for what's on those things whatsoever why should be re- we be responsible for what turns up on people's news feeds save for the fact that people's news feeds are personalized controlled by algorithms and controlled by facebook and therein lies the problem now, uh, Facebook have had a couple of strategies over the years to try and sort of wriggle their way out of any sense of responsibility for uh, what shows up um, in people's news feeds. Uh, one of them initially was to employ their own team of news curators that would look after sort of a trending stories box um, that eventually got sort of phased out, I guess. And there was a report emerged, I think, one or two years ago at this stage, Um about uh, the conditions that human moderators were working in at Facebook. And they, there was this sort of sinister undercurrent that, you know, you guys aren't here for very long. As soon as the algorithm, you know, capital A, starts learning everything, you know, you guys aren't going to be needed whatsoever. So um, the news team was was replaced by faith in this algorithm, which showed to be completely unreliable over the last um, uh, over the last US election. Pretty much if it looked like a story, uh, it was treated as a story and it didn't matter where it came from. Uh, and now, uh, sort of in the aftermath of that, Facebook said, Okay, we're going to start employing third-party fact-checkers. So again, still not our problem, but if the AP or Snopes or Guardian, say, have a problem with something uh, that has been submitted to them, yeah, we will flag it on the time on people's news feeds and say, you know, this story is from an unverified source or there's a, this uh, story is uh, of questionable veracity or something like that. Um, and there has been backlash from people within the organizations that Facebook are partnering with saying, look, this is a PR exercise. They're not they're not really responding to things that that we're flagging to them. So the latest uh, Facebook strategy is to ask the audience. So if you have your own little liberal or conservative echo chamber and Facebook asks you, are you satisfied with the quality of um, this medium? Naturally enough, if you if it confirms what you already think, if there's an element of confirmation bias, so of course you're going to say yes. You know, if if we do a few nice stories about a company, people working at that company are asked, do you like tech radio? Of course they're going to say yes. It doesn't matter what else we talk about or write about or what have you. Um, people have their own little filter bubbles. And this is really, it's not going to do anything other than make sure people are entrenched further in them. It, uh, it is a massive, massive problem and they absolutely have to do something about it because quite rightly, I, I think there are very strict rules for media when it comes to elections, uh, particularly broadcast media for radio and television. And I think the same thing kind of applies to Facebook because when it goes bad, we've seen, we've seen the effects of it. Um, I, sorry, I don't want to say when it goes bad, even though I'm sure 99% of the world would probably agree with me. Uh, but the one thing that is absolutely undeniable is that it definitely does have an effect if the PR and, and the, uh, the, the news people from the various political campaigns want to spin messages a certain way, they're able to do it using social media. And it's, it's interesting where we're going as a society on this little rock that we call Well, Earth. we've got a very interesting plebiscite coming up in a few months about repealing the Eighth Amendment. So this could be a really interesting case study mm. uh, from an Irish perspective because mm. this is a hugely contentious issue. I mean, this, you know, there is the potential for, you know, people up and down the country to fall out with each other over this so will oh, we yeah. start seeing um oh you know, yeah fake news oh will yeah. breitbart suddenly have an opinion yeah listen uh, speaking of uh, mr trump uh, he is having uh, a bit of a run-in with apple tell me about that 
Yeah, well, this is part of the whole America first thing. Uh, Trump, um, part of his platform was, you look at these American companies, they're investing overseas. They're not even repatriating their their, uh, profits. They would much rather hold it in cash overseas and take out loans over here to pay their to pay their dividends. Um, so uh, he is um, basically laid down the gauntlet to multinationals and slapped Apple with a $38 billion bill for holding its profits offshore. Ooh. Now, when Compare you add in when you add in what Ireland, what Apple is paying to Ireland, that's a, that's a nice round fifty well, billion. <laughs> the money Apple and the Irish government don't want paid to Ireland being thirteen billion. Put that in perspective. <laughs> I know, I know, it's great, it's crazy numbers, isn't it? But then when you look at what Apple's worth is, <laughs> it's, it's still a, a drop in the ocean. Company. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. a trillion dollar company. Exactly. And you know, all of a sudden, that European bill starts to look an awful lot more reasonable, doesn't it? Mm. Well, when they have big tax bills like that, you see, what they're going to do is they're going to put a ten percent uh, price hike on all of their products, and they're going to call it a feature. <laughs> Yeah, we've been there before, haven't we? (laughs) We have indeed. Listen, that is a quick look at uh, what is happening in the world of tech this week. Niall, thank you so much. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Way back in the late 60s, 30 engineers and 10 artists put on an exhibition in New York's 69th Regiment Armoury called Nine Evenings Theatre and Engineering. There's a heady mix. But the event became the catalyst for an organisation called Experiments in Art and Technology, or EAT for short, EAT. And to learn more about it, Niall Kitson had a very, very interesting conversation with his periodical editor, Julie Martin. So I guess when we're looking at EAT as a as an organization as a movement we have to look back to that sort of initial spark where um it was decided or whether it was found that okay there is an interface here and there's a role for the engineer and there's the role for the artist to collaborate so I guess Billy Kluver gets credited with a an awful lot of that initial spark over at Bell Labs. So tell us a little bit about his story up till then. I think uh, Billy went to the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm uh, studying electrical engineering and in addition to that he was very interested in movies so as he said he walked across town to the humanities faculty where they had the uh, uh, film, student film club. He joined the film club and he ultimately was the president his last year in, 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 uh, in school, and he discovered not only a European avant-garde films, but of course American avant-garde films as well, Maya Deren, uh, the Whitney Brothers, etc. So he was very interested in film and, and uh, art. And so um, when he came, he came to New York, and uh, rather than joining a laboratory because it was sort of McCarthy days, and it, he thought... Um, didn't want to be involved in that, although he wasn't a you know, radical or anything. He went to get his PhD, and he got his PhD at Berkeley, and met some more film people, uh, Frank Stauffacher and uh, Dick Foster, who had done a, a series of avant-garde films. So he already was interested in in film. When he uh, got to New York, um, he was at Bell Labs, and he w- really began to feel the limit, limited outlook of his his uh, fellow engineers that, that, that they brilliant making brilliant uh, building brilliant systems, but really not as involved in 
the implications for the individual or the implications for society. Plus, the individual was very much cut off from technology at that time. You know, there was IBM or the telephone company, or you could get, you know, a truckload of plastic, but you couldn't get experimental plastic. So um, these, these, he started thinking about these things. And in 1960, um, his friend, in 1960, his, his friend Pontus Hulten, who's head of Moderna Musée at, in Stockholm, uh, wrote him that Jean Tingley, the Swiss artist, was coming to New York and needed help. And Jean had this idea to make one of his automatic drawing machines, but that it would destroy itself as it was drawing. And he got Billy involved in in helping him, everything from going to the open dumps in New Jersey and finding bathtubs and things like that and bicycle wheels by the dozens. And then Billy worked with colleagues at Bell Labs to do a series of timing events that would do different destructive events. And um, in working with Jean, he got very inspired of the idea of working with artists and this possibility of supplying the artist with new palette that they could, their work would perhaps be more relevant with things going on now rather than paint, et cetera, et cetera. And, one, and he, so he would begin to ask friends as he went, is there something you want? Is there, do you have an idea? So he himself began to ask them if they had an idea that the technology could solve. I think that makes a, a very interesting point of contact. Engineers are used to working with, with materials. Artists are used to working with materials. And that's where the, the natural overlap comes from. Well, I think Billy very much... In terms of thinking about this, he was very much thinking about artists working with engineers, not as much scientists. I think today it's a little bit different because possibly science is a little bit different. There's sciences, sciences that are very involved in human activity, the, the, the genome, uh, genetics, more things with the environment. But in those days it was physics or it, it was seemed to be more separate from the individual, more something separate from the artist. So his focus very much was on engineers who are problem solvers, who are involved with physical things, who you know saw, can work with things like that. And that's the level at which the technology was. You know, the, you weren't re- there really wasn't a digital. It was analog. You're talking analog. And so he very much saw the artist and the engineer working together uh, as a very fruitful. And the artist as a possibility of inspiring the engineer to think of new possibilities for what he or she was doing in their own work. There seems to be that um, sort of mindset of being the natural problem solver that when Billy was working with artists, they would set the, the problem or they would find something out about a material and can we do this, can we do that with it? Um, do you think that sort of problem-solving mindset helps solidify the nature of the collaboration between artists and engineers. How do you mean solidify? Do you, do you think that it really created that common space where they go, oh, right, okay, art isn't that big of a leap for an engineer to oh, deal I, with? I, I definitely think the fact that two people, both of whom have very specific skills, are focusing on solving a problem, on, 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 on an objective, means that you don't sit and talk about Oh, my wife paints dogs, and that's art. I mean, that's not, or you know, or or the only music you like is opera. You don't; those issues don't come up because you're working on. Well, how do we get? How do we, you know, a transducer? How do we send sound from, you know, from 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 the platform to a to a transducer that's on a, a metal object, and how then that how that sound can then be fed back in? So, very specific problems. 
um, I think the, the engineer gets involved involved as a professional. And so it's not about aesthetics. It's about his... his and I think the artist questions or maybe needs are not quote-unquote aesthetic. They're very practical to, to fulfill an idea. But I think both of them are um, flexible. But they also work very differently. So some of the problems of the collaboration are that... You know, the artist will have an idea and the engineer will want to build something, but then it takes time. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's a patience involved that the engineer, artist needs to wait to see what the engineer will come up with. And then perhaps together they, they adjust it. Or, but it, it really is a, a human relationship that I think is very important. So fast forwarding to um, 1966 and I guess what we would really sort of stick a pin in and go, Okay, this is the moment where this went public, uh, where we're looking at the the nine evenings event. So, can you tell me a little bit about sort of the build up and what people actually saw when they got there? Because for me, it's a it's a really interesting mix of venue, audience, and and product. It's a sort of a, a an explosive mix. <laughs> it's a very large space. The armories are a very large space, and. Uh, it was set up with bleachers on one side. This bleachers, it sat about 1,500 people. Um, it, it's, it's hard to say what, what people saw. I mean, it, each piece, is, if you look at the films, each piece was so different. I think each artist had his or her real image that they, they knew what they were doing. Uh, it, was, it was on a slightly larger level, uh, level than they had... Uh, worked on before but they it, it, a lot of it came out of their own work and their own concerns and I think people were seeing a much more avant-garde situation not necessarily the technology but the work itself was much more avant-garde than many of them had experienced before and that was part of the it was exciting but it also put a kind of pressure on the audience that they and it was expecting. a uh, Sort of a, uh, an unexpected audience in a, in a certain it way. Much, it was much bigger. The audience from the nine evenings was much bigger than had come to these performances. It had been 200 people, most of whom you knew, <laughs> in downtown, in lofts, or in spaces downtown. Although John Cage and David Tudor, of course, working with Merce Cunningham and Walshenberg working with Merce Cunningham, had performed in, in larger spaces to larger audiences. But but the other performers, the dancers and the choreographers, really it was a, a, a much larger venue and a much larger audience than they had uh, And a much stranger contract between the audience and the artist as well because, uh, as you mentioned, there was a PR firm involved and they had to find the hook to bring people in the door and it didn't necessarily match up with what people were seeing in front of them. Exactly. That, unfortunately, that was a, a little bit... We our naivete in, in, in letting there be a a PR firm and, and just sort of letting them go it probably would have been much better not to have made those promises. So when people came in the door, um, what exactly were they looking at? I mean, they, people were promised, you know, you will be able to fly. You, no, you know. it, 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 they just said that had to go out the window. I mean, if you, look, I think you have to look at the films and you'll see each of the performances. Some people, Lucinda Childs was very concentrated because the, the Doppler sonar didn't go that far, so she concentrated it on, on sort of one area or, or two or three areas, but very concentrated. Deborah Hayes' piece was all over the floor, very brightly, brightly lit, and the, and the 
uh, dancers and, and, and uh, platforms could move throughout the whole space. Uh, Bob Whitman, it was quite dark. The cars came in in the dark, and you just saw images on the back wall. So each one was very different. John Cage, um, all of his equipment and things was were on two tables uh, down on the floor. And the first performance... Um, People sat in their seats, but some people wandered down. So the second night of his performance, he invited people to come down. So the second night, people could wander around, sit on the floor, watch what he was doing. Um, so they saw different things. Each, each performance was quite different. And so looking beyond that period, I mean, uh, critical response, I think it's fair to say, was, was mixed. Um, audiences didn't necessarily know what they were looking at. So for the 10 audiences and 30 engineers involved, what was the fallout for the, from their perspective? Well, I think um, certainly that one of the fallouts for the, for the engineer, for everybody, was, this, was the idea that EAT started, that this was the initiative, this was the initiative uh, that started this organization. Um, I think some of the artists, in a way... In terms of art history, it was almost the culmination of the Judson Theater, Judson Dance Theater uh, era, so to speak, because uh, which had started in 62-63 and was much more spread out. But I think Deborah Hay, Yvonne Rayner, Lucinda Child, Steve Paxton, all of whom had been part of the Judson Church, their work uh, changed a lot. Lucinda Child said, I just wanted to stop and think about it, and then she went on and, and her dance became slightly different. Steve, um, uh, the Grand Union, there was a Grand Union cooperative for a while, but his his work changed. Um, I, I think it was, it, 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 people were beginning to go into new di- directions. Uh, Rauschenberg got very interested in working with technology, so that his series is the great technical pieces that he did from then on, from uh, Oracle, of course, of 65, but then Soundings and, and, and Solstice and Mud Muse. You know, Bob worked in series. He did this great series of, of uh, technical works. Um, Bob Whitman, Robert Whitman, continued to do performances, uh, not on the scale of this, but he certainly, he was, his work was performance, incorporating people, objects, uh, sound, film, etc., and so he he continued uh, to do that, um, and so did Cage and Tudor, of course. Cage never worked that directly with that much technology uh, after Variation Seven. I mean, five, six, and seven are really his in physical involvement with some of these some of these uh, technical means. David Tudor it was his first. He acknowledged first piece, but and in that piece were contained so many seeds of what he began to do later. I mean, the use of transducers on objects, which of course rainforest uh, is great piece. Rainforest four and rainforest one through four, and the you know feedback feedback circuits. It's got all the things that he continued to explore started with his work with the nine evenings. Um, and Eivind Falstrom, again, was mainly a painter and did theater pieces, but uh, uh, he went on to make a feature film, et cetera. But I think from that point of view, it was kind of a watershed moment for them aesthetically as well, and had, which had nothing to do with the technology. 
And uh, lastly, just looking at the involvement of Bell Labs, as I guess from the business perspective, um, what kind of fallout do you think there was from there? I mean, the idea of the artist in residence, it's still with us now uh, in a lot of companies, but in technology companies, it seems to have fallen out of favour. When it comes to the large corporates, though, like the Bell Labs, do you think there is still the place for the artist in, in organisations like that? Well, first, uh, I have to clarify that actually the nine evenings, the engineers did it on their own time. It, it was not sponsored by Bell. Um, Billy recruited people first to go to Sweden, and they got all excited, and then they didn't go to Sweden, but they got excited working with the artists, and they did it on their own time, vacation time. But he did talk to John Pierce many years later, and he said, you know, John, all these people were working so hard on this other not their normal job. You know, what did you think about it? And Pierce said, it was so positive. It was such positive energy that I knew if I tried to stop it, it would be very negative. So some of the people, they understood the value of this. As I said, Bell Labs, uh, personally, uh, John Pierce and Max Matthews, invited artists in to to do work. Partly, I think they were working with computer graphics to see how little information you could send over a wire to have this, this, the... Uh, Picture phones, so people like Mike Knoll and and Ken Knowlton, who were and uh, uh, Manfred Schroeder, who were working with computer graphics at the time. But then they invited other artists, particularly sound artists, Rise and Jim Tenney, because I think Max Matthews and John Pierce were interested themselves to come. So there wasn't a formal artist in residence program. Maybe some people worked there longer, Marcia, uh, Marcia Siegel, and maybe. Um, What's her name? Uh, Lillian Schwartz. But now, actually, Bell Labs, had, Nokia Bell Labs, has instituted a formal artist-in-residence program, sort of inspired by the, by the experience of EAT. But, uh, so that I think uh, companies are, are beginning to be interested in what, what could come about through the collaboration with, with artists. I think if they think it's going to be the next big thing, it's not going to work. As I say, artists make art. But the, uh, the idea that the possibility that there are engineers within the companies that get very excited working in Bell Labs, there are, are engineers who've begun to you know, work with the artists or work with this program who get very excited about it and, and, and see how they as engineers can contribute and how it can contribute to them. So uh, it's, really the, it's really the commitment of the company um, to believe there's a value in working with artists and it can be valuable for their people to meet and work with artists. And that was Nile Kitson talking to Julie Martin about E18. If you'd like to know more about the organisation, you can see a film about Nine Evenings, which is showing at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, where it is screening as part of the Digital Self Exhibition. That's our show for this week. The programme is supported by irishjobs.ie. For the latest jobs in IT, visit techcentral.ie forward slash jobs. That address again is techcentral.ie forward slash jobs. And it's all powered by the good people at irishjobs.ie. Remember, of course, you can also get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us every week online or Fridays at 5 on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. 
Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.